to the Unlearning Channel. Oki Natanaku Melvi X Genochtotu Mogenstis. My name is Melvi. Um, hello in the Blackfoot language. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone uh, to this special recording of the Unlearning Channel. I want to begin by acknowledging that we are broadcasting on the traditional territories of the people of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which uh, includes the Siksika, the Bagani, and the Gaina Nations, uh, also the Estonian Nakoda, which includes the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley uh, Bands, and also the Métis of Region 3. I also want to acknowledge uh, Indigenous peoples from all over Turtle Island who reside in Treaty 7 and make this land uh, their home. And I also want to acknowledge Indigenous people around the world who may be listening to our broadcast. Today, uh, I am joined by Tyra Erskine and Carissa, and they will be uh, with me today in this, in this powerful um, powerful episode on the Black Lives Matter movement and the, and the, current, uh, the current situation that uh, we're facing right now. Uh, so if I can get Tyra to uh, introduce themselves and, uh, and then we'll go to Carissa as well. Thank you. And I'm excited to be on the show today. Uh, so my name is Tyra Erskine. Um, and my ethnocultural identity is Jamaican, Scottish, and Cree Métis. And my pronouns are she, her. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much for inviting me to uh, chat okay. on your show today. Oh, it's, um, it's Mel V. Mel V, sorry. No worries. <laughs> Just wanted to clear that up. <clears throat> and my name is Chris. Um, so I was born and raised in uh, Ottawa, Ontario. Um, my ancestry is St. Lucian. Um, but again, born in Canada, so I identify as a Black Canadian woman uh, with Caribbean ancestry. So I've been working in uh, social justice and human rights for probably the last 10 years. Um, and yeah, that's me. And I did not share my ethnocultural background. Um, so my my mom is uh, St. Lucian as well. It's always incredible to uh, to hold space with another St. Lucian. It's like uh, being around family. Uh, my dad is uh, is a white Canadian. I identify fully as black because that is fully how I'm treated in this society. So we are uh, ha- we're having this uh, this important episode today uh, in light of the really renewed calls for justice in the in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, George Floyd was murdered last Monday in Minnesota. A police officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which, uh, which ended in the traumatic death of, of George Floyd. Uh, there has been protests in all 50 states in the United States and 18 countries around the world, including Canada, to... Uh, to fight against uh, these injustices and and this um, and this this terrible uh, reality that as black people we are we are facing with police brutality so I want to want to get into get into it right away with uh, with Tyra and Carissa so I really want to hear from both of you why do you why do you both f- feel that George's murder hit so hard at this moment, at this time? Um, so personally, these experiences have been happening for too long. Like the Black Lives Matter movement within the last two years has come up time and time again. Um, police brutality is not something that, it's something that we've always known happens to our community. And I think at this point in 2020, with everything going on, we're just tired. I think what people don't understand is that when this happens to one of us, it can have, we know that it can happen to all of us. Seeing it happen to one of us is like it's collectively happening to all of us because we know that we just cannot operate the same in society. And I think that 
as Black people, we have, there's so many racist incidents that happen to us throughout our entire lives. Tiny little microaggressions, slights, we had to maneuver ourselves differently. And it's, we're constantly cautious that we move through the, the world with Black skin. And I think that when this stuff happens, it just brings all of those things up to the surface and we're enraged because we just cannot understand that why this death was so senseless. He had to plead for his life. Like it, it was just so inhumane. And yet you see the comparisons as to how other like white people get arrested and that's not the case. They're not, they don't die like that for no reason. So I think that I'm not shocked by the, the response. I'm amazed at how all the countries, all the states have come together and rallied support and it's in Canada as well. But I honestly think that collectively we've just had enough um, and we're using the media platforms today to spark this rage and this justice because it just needs to happen and we're holding them accountable. Mm, absolutely, Carissa. Absolutely. The way that uh, we embody the world as, as black people is, is fraught and it's it's dangerous for us you know even even on those on those micro levels i oftentimes i find that i have i have policed my own behavior and my own reactions because i'm i'm worried about about a a, a backlash and i think i think to add to to like everything like that we've said already like i i agree like 100% and I think it's also being like exacerbated at this time because we also see that black people are like uh, more likely to die from COVID-19 based on like this, the data from America and the data from the UK. Um, unfortunately in Canada, we don't really collect race-based data on COVID-19 deaths, but right. we have that. Plus we have this police brutality so it's like we're kind of getting attacked from all sides right now. So it makes sense that these protests are amping up during this period because we're afraid and because we're hopeless. And like even dealing with the COVID-19 itself is traumatic. And now we have to deal with police brutality at the same time as well. It's overwhelming. And one of, one of the th uh, things I've seen that is that... I think has been so important is that public health officials themselves have been acknowledging that the the health risk of racism to to black people is a crisis and they are actually there has been this this outpouring of of support from public health officials to to say that the that the protests that are going on uh they are they're intimately linked to the to the killing of George Floyd, as you touched on, Tyra, uh, in in so many of of the American states, uh, sometimes the numbers are as high as sixty to seventy percent of the of the COVID nineteen related deaths are black people, black and brown people, and so these these two are not are not separate, and that that feeling of being of being attacked on. On, on all sides from from the virus, uh, black people are often in roles that that put us in in more at, at more risk being being caretakers, uh, working in in postal services, delivery these you know these are very um, the these are frontline workers and healthcare workers as well, right and so we we are dying disproportionately. And then to to see very viscerally the state take the life of of a black man, uh, there's never a reason to do that. But to see it unfolding on on film, I think was that was that powder keg uh, that powder keg moment. But I I do want to um, I do want to touch on uh, the Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter movement uh, and how. Black lives are being differentially um, addressed in within this movement. Um, Breonna Taylor was uh, was was killed um, about two months ago, and um, she was she was killed while she was while she was while she was sleeping. And there hasn't been the same outcry about uh, Breonna Taylor's death. Uh, so I wanted to 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 really to really touch on 
you know, how, how is the Black Lives Matter movement differentially uh, addressing police violence against different, different Black people? So I guess just to kind of chime in there, I think the difference with Floyd and Brianna, again, George Floyd's death was filmed. Very graphic footage that literally you knew when he died in that film. Um, and that sparked public outrage because you couldn't escape the video, right? Brianna Taylor was killed watching TV, I think, in her house. I think the police just charged in her house and they shot her multiple times. Um, I believe her, boy- yeah. her boyfriend was in the home as well. And that wasn't filmed, right? So we heard, I think that story went viral, but it, because, and the thing is, a lot of times this happens so frequently. And the thing is that the police are able to cover it up and the police usually get off. So when there's no actual proof, somehow they twist stories and they have the power to plant evidence and say that they felt threatened. And it always goes off, oh, well, we felt threatened, so we shot. And then people end up getting off murder. Mm. Um, so I'm so happy that the case of Ben Taylor has been reopened because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that, again, like, we can't lose the momentum on this movement because there's a timeline of, of essentially, since I think, what, 2012 with Trayvon Martin? Yes. And there's been countless deaths like since then. Um, and yeah, like, again, I think the fact that these things are now being filmed is just making it a lot easier for us to kind of cause this type of social justice movement on a whole level. Yeah, and I, I do feel that, um, like, there is a, a difference, I think, in the amount of media attention um, that different Black people will get. Um, and also, just right now, I would like to acknowledge that, um, like, on this day of recording, it would have been Brianna Taylor's birthday, um, so, like, I just want to mention that. Um, and I also think it's it's also good to mention, like, like the other people who um, are being killed by the police who aren't uh, cis men. Absolutely. Um, and so mentioning, like, Tony McDade um, and, like, the lack of media attention that he's been getting. Um, and just the way that, like, obviously, like, <laughs> we know that like oppression is linked um, and like, like the, like incorporating like intersectionality in this analysis. And like, we also so have critical. to, exactly. And we also have to know that like when we're saying black lives matter, like we're saying black women's lives matter, black trans people's lives matter, black queer people's lives matter, black people with disabilities, their lives matter. And like, it's important to incorporate everyone within that. And so when I say Black Lives Matter, I mean, every Black person's life matters. Absolutely. So I want to talk now about the continued and ongoing impact of policing systems on Black communities. I've been reading a lot lately, and one study that, uh, that I came across talked about how black people in Toronto in particular are 20 times more likely to be killed by the police than white people in Toronto and that uh, police shootings involving a death uh, are 70 percent of the of the people involved in those are are black people uh, which is like that's a number that I find even difficult to to fathom, like I find that very difficult to to comprehend, um, not in the sense of of being surprised, but being really outraged at the lack of outrage um, ab- about that. And so, I want to hear from from both of you. Um, you know, how do you see that that ongoing impact of policing on Black communities, whether that is here in Canada and how? Or how do you see that playing out locally here in Calgary? So this is this is really tricky because I used to live in Ontario and I can, I've witnessed firsthand instances where I remember right up the street from where I lived and worked, there was a man that was killed. And right now I can't remember his name, but it'll come back to me. And he had his hands up um, and the police shot him dead, saying he had a gun in his hand and he did not. All the eyewitnesses said that he had no weapons in his hands and he was shot dead right in front of this restaurant on the corner of a main intersection. Um, in Brampton, Ontario. And I remember his family and people were rallying for months to get the police to do a proper arrest and do a proper investigation to the case. 
and nothing was ever done. And that was before I moved here. So that would have had to have been 2014 that happened. Um, and that's just one incident in Toronto that I, I would just remember very clearly. Um, and also, I know the police had have an equity, diversity, and inclusion board. Um, and I know they've done a lot of diversity training around anti-Black racism and whatnot. But there's a story of a guy, Orlando Bowen, who was an ex-CFL player, who was doing these trainings with police officers. And lo and behold, one day he got arrested for and drugs were planted on him. And this is the same guy that was doing diversity training <laughs> for the police. And so when these cops actually found out who they arrested and falsely planted evidence on there, it was like, oh shit, like this, you know what I mean? So this guy was able to, <laughs> he ended up suing the police and he got like a pretty large settlement. But could you imagine the same black man that's there training these police officers about diversity and anti-black racism and <laughs> being in a situation where they ended up falsely arresting him, planting drugs on him. They beat him up. I think he had a big black eye. There's all kinds of awful pictures. And then he ended up suing them or whatever for, for money, right? So it's like, even though the police are kind of taking steps to do anti-Black racism training, they have their diversity and inclusion board, you know, they're trying to make the changes. I don't, I think it's one of those ingrained things where they're just trained to see us as threats all the time. And I think the media perpetuates this because anytime you see any type of act happen against a Black person or a Black person involved in any type of crime, the way the media spins the article is as is automatically portrays this person as an awful person they'll go into your deep darkest secrets and that will be the headline not over what actually happened former drug dealer shot and killed this person like that person probably would have gotten that drug charge at 13 right so it's just like Mm -hmm. i think it's deeper than that and i don't know how to hold police accountable because again like we can put as many trainings in place as possible but it's not changing the fact that they keep killing us and they keep pulling us over and targeting us and you know Kind of adding to to what you're saying, Carissa, there's been um, there's been articles coming out about how George Floyd uh, tested positive for COVID-19 in April and that he was asymptomatic. And right. to me, that is that is trying to blame the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been people saying how he had clogged arteries. His health wasn't the best. Your health is your health is irrelevant when somebody is kneeling on your neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that people are, are digging up these, you know, these, um, these articles and stories about, about George Floyd. And I'm noticing people are also sharing, um, sharing pictures of, of police um, hugging black people, uh, doing things for the community. And to me, that is, that is irrelevant, it's beside the point. In order for policing to be reformed, we have to address the systemic white supremacy of this society. There is no other way to, to impact the system of, of policing than, than, to, than to address systemic racism. Policing in North America was, was, was created, was founded to to target and 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 disrupt Black and Indigenous lives, um, here in Calgary, the the uh, Fort Fort Calgary actually was uh, it's strategically placed on uh, the traditional um, meeting places of of Blackfoot people. It was it was set up. It was meant to to follow their movements and and track them. Um, in the United States, the the current the current police system that that they have is directly traced back to the, the slave patrols and white people hunting down enslaved people to, to return them to their masters. And those, those, those deep roots of, of policing black and brown lives, those continue unabated to this day. And so the fact that, you know, you just brought up a, a black man who did diversity training and then was targeted by the police tells me that those, that those trainings, they don't do enough. Trainings in reality, they, they, attempt to target, they attempt to target individuals. And what we're seeing is a systemic, a systemic problem. 
it is not only an individual problem. Individuals comprise the system. But in order to, to truly reform policing, we need to look at those, at those, at those deep roots and to, to begin to evoke that systemic change. There is no other way, in my opinion. And I think, too, like to add, I think like training the individuals is working on the assumption that the system isn't working exactly the way mm. it was created to work. And so personally, of my opinion, I think that we need to defund the police and eventually abolish the police and look at finding other forms of justice. Like I, I would like to mention that yesterday um, in New Brunswick, an indigenous woman was killed by the police and her name was Chantelle Moore. And this was yesterday in the height of all of these protests against police brutality, it happens again. So I think that the only answer currently is to defund the police. And that's, uh, that's really what, uh, what I'm, what I'm hearing in terms of, uh, of action that needs to be, to be taken. And maybe Tyra, if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit more to, to what, uh, what defunding the police will look like, what would that look like? Well, I think that, um, so f- um, in this case that I mentioned with Chantel Moore, um, I believe that the police were called to her house um, for a wellness check. Um, and then that wellness check ended with the police killing her. Um, and this is unfortunately um, what we hear quite often is that a lot of these wellness checks turn into black and indigenous people being killed by the police. And for those who don't know, a wellness check is to check on the, on the mental health of, of an individual. And uh, it's, it's often uh, done in, uh, in a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Melby. You're welcome. And then, so I think like that calls into question, like why police are the ones that are doing these wellness checks. And it's also uh, makes me think like, what are the other ways we can incorporate this type of community care without actually putting someone's health more at risk? Like how can we better support people who are going through mental health challenges in a way that one, isn't going to escalate the situation, and two, right. it's going to end up with them dead. And we know that the way that society perceives black and brown people, we are perceived as more dangerous and more threatening. We're not being seen as, as human beings in these, in these encounters. And, and I, and I want to really emphasize the point that, that you brought up, Tyra, that, that the problem is not that the system is not working, it is working exactly as, as intended. The, the dehumanization of black people and black life contributes directly to a black person not being seen as a human being in these encounters. We've seen time and time and we've seen time and time again white male mass shooters being taken into police custody humanely and without and often without even any sort of uh, force being used. And to me, that, that points to a direct, a direct inability to view black people as human beings. And that is not, that is not an easy fix. And, and this is why looking at, looking at the, the community and how do we better support the mental well-being of black people, I think that will be far more effective in terms of, of addressing, for instance, those, those wellness checks, because they often end up being deadly. Absolutely. So how do, how do both of you see anti-black racism contri- directly contributing to the moment, to the moment that we're in right now, 
and the and the outcry that is that is happening. That's that's a really loaded. Um, <laughs> I, I come in. I come in hard. I know. Like, <laughs> yeah. where, where do we start? <laughs> yeah. So I think again, like that, just kind of goes back to systemic racism um, from time. Um, and I think again, it's always ingrained in people to see us as threats and as aggressive. And that's how society always frames black folks, um, whether it's movie portrayals, um, whether it's just like, again, how the media always flips articles and shows black people's faces, mugshots, the worst pictures ever when there's a crime committed. And yet a white person can do the same crime yet. It's just a very smiling photo of them in the news. A white person could murder like a six-year-old and they'd, they'd find the most decent person, like picture of that person to show you on the screen to almost make it seem like, hey, well, and then all oh, mental health attributed to this horrific incident. Yet when it's a black person, they'll dig up, again, anything to show the media. So I think it's, con- we're constantly being shown all these negative portrayals of black people. And again, a lot of white people and people that aren't black live in silos amongst themselves where they don't really even talk to black people. They don't really know anything about them. So anything you know about black people is what you're seeing in the media, right? And I think that that in itself is a problem. Mm. And then you you have boards of people that run the country and they're not diverse. So there's a lot of like s- systemic things happening from people that make policies and this, how businesses are run and how opportunities are given and not given to people of color. So when you don't see people of color in certain positions of power and they're not there to kind of lead their voice to make the change, then how are we going to see things change on that level? Like you have educators that are essentially are almost taught amongst their peers that, oh, well, black kids are going to fail anyway, so we may as well just encourage them to do lower level courses because they're, we're not, we're not going to bother encourage them to go to university. I cannot tell you how many times that I've had teachers tell me not to take courses oh again and tell me that yep. I should just go to college and not you know, aspire to university. And that's not, it's not just me. That's happened to multiple black youth that I know. And the thing is, if you're not a strong-willed person and if you can't see your gifts and you're going to rely on what the teacher's telling you, then you're doomed from the start because then where's your self-esteem? So I think I, that it definitely, I was told to go to vocational school. Um, not that that, not that that is inherently bad, but that was the only role that, that that person could see me in. Mm-hmm. So I think like, again, like it's the systems in place that run society that perpetuate anti-blackness. Um, and I think that if people aren't taught in school, you know, this compassion uh, for what our lives are really like and start bring awareness to that, then things aren't really going to change on that level. And I think at this point, we have to start with the kids, right? Because the kids are going to be running the world soon enough, right? And I think like if we start with the younger generation, that's how we kind of make the perpetual change. Because honestly, at this point, like again, some people are just ignorant. And the fact that we're still seeing All Lives Matter posts in protest in protest of Black Lives Matter is very problematic. It's appalling. <laughs> absolutely appalling nobody not a goddamn person was saying all lives matter until we as black people said black lives matter exactly it it is it astounds me um and also i just want to go back to um a point that you made carissa about the media um so i want to mention like a specific instance of this that has occurred um very recently in canada um, so recently in Toronto, um, Regis Korczynski Paquette was um, killed um, during a police encounter at her home. Another uh, wellness check. Exactly. Um, and um, recently the family announced that they're putting interviews with the police watchdog on hold uh, because there has been multiple leaks from sources. Um, and also considering that the only people that were in the location while this event occurred were her family and the police. Um, it makes me question exactly who these sources were that are leaking this private case information to the mm. media. Absolutely. And thank you for, um, for bringing her, um, her death also um, into the into the conversation because, as we all know, often people like to say that that Canada doesn't have the same anti-black racism problem that 
that the United States does. I know we're all tired of of hearing that, but um, but I, I want to I want to talk a little bit about that because that that sense of of, of smugness and superiority that too many white and sometimes non non black Canadians have is is can be really quite uh, harmful and in some cases deadly to uh, to black people. In the in the case of, of of Regis in Toronto, this 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 wellness check that went that went awry cost her her life. That is that was that's not an American case. That's right here in Canada. The uh, the black communities that settled in Canada in Amber Valley um, were subject to some to some very difficult um, and and blatant and and poignant uh, and poignant racism, and the fact that they are erased period shows exactly that that I feel like Canadians are 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 simply refusing not just in ignorance, but refusing to engage with anti-black racism other than this moment that, that we're seeing now where there's, where there's some consciousness being raised. But there, and, and part of the reason I, I, I feel that anti-black racism is not, is not being addressed here in the Canadian context is that it really, it really challenges this, this notion of Canada being being a multicultural welcoming place for everyone and I feel like as a black person we're often kind of you know sometimes I feel like we're used cynically as as pawns to show well Canada Canada can't be racist because uh, there are you know there are black folks from around the world who who live there and yet we're not we're totally erased from the national the national fabric um, I also want to want to bring into the space uh, Africville in Nova Scotia. Um, Africville was a historically black community that was systematically denied um, sewage services, any kind of municipal services, even though they paid uh, taxes. It was uh, knocked down. I, I don't recall exactly when it was. It was destroyed, um, but it was destroyed and turned into into a dog park. And to me, that that shows kind of the the esteem and the and the lack of lack of humanity that that is given to black people in in this in this Canadian context. Yeah, I think I think like the Canadian context is like so fascinating. Um, and I also find it like quite frustrating, uh, just because like someone says something racist while they have a smile on their face, uh, or they say, sorry, I don't mean to be racist, but then they say something completely out of pocket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That that doesn't make it okay. Uh, so I think it's, it's like, it's like people in Canada are, are racist as well. Canada has like an incredibly racist history. Um, and it's like, just because people here are wearing smiles, whether per- perpetuating hateful acts, doesn't me- make it any more okay. It's, and it's really a form of, of gaslighting where somebody will say something racist and then the reality of it is, 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 is undermined because that person has said it in a way that's, that's polite and with a smile and that leads to to that questioning of you know is what that person just said you know was that was that racist yes but that that delivery and how it's done here really really can impact the the mental health of of black people and we we haven't been talking enough about how constantly having your your reality and your perceptions about who you are as a person, about the racist experiences that you have undermined, truly impacts the mental health of Black people. So another um, 
and I and I know we're all we're all hearing it now. There's there's a lot of talk about about allyship and what's the place uh, of allies. What can allies do? Uh, how are how are you both uh, feeling about that? Uh, the place of place of allies in this movement right now. Um, the place of allies. I think you know what. To be honest with you, in terms of Calgary, um, seeing the numbers that showed up at the protest on Monday, I was very impressed. It was a very diverse group of of people that came out um, to show support for for Black Lives Matter, um, and I didn't expect that. To be honest with you, um, in Calgary, so. At the end of the day, I think, like, personally, I want to see everyone talking about this um, because it, it should affect everybody. And I think that even, again, like, being born and raised in Canada and, and having a very diverse group of friends, I want to see my friends speak up about this. Um, because if they don't, then I'm going to question our friendship. Um, because it doesn't make sense for, you, for this not to be affecting Absolutely. you. Yeah. So for me... I, I feel like if you're not an ally at this point, then you're a racist. <laughs> because yep, I yeah. agree. <laughs> you should be supporting the movement because you shouldn't be okay with seeing Black people die over senseless, stupid matters. You should want to see that these police officers get arrested and get charged, you know, for everything that they're doing. Exactly. And if all these people can do with their white privilege is just post like a black box on their Instagram or Facebook, get out of my face. Like utilize your (laughs) privilege in a way that's actually going to help the lives of black people. Read some books. You know what I mean? One thing I want to say is uh, I'm, I'm a little bit over, over allyship. Uh, I, I believe more and more in accomplices and the way that I distinguish an accomplice from an ally an accomplice is somebody who is actively using their privilege by passing the mic taking a step back by decolonizing their own lens and their and decentering their their whiteness to me too often allyship is performative it's too often done to get the you know the ally cookie and to get people to to recognize that I'm an ally I'm not one of those racist people I'm not I'm not anti-black I'm not you know xyz to me you cannot you cannot truly label yourself as as an ally and I say that because allyship and, you know, my opinion, accompliceship needs to be, needs to be how, how we view you, how the, how the marginalized or oppressed person views you. It's not something that you can, that you can claim for, for yourself because anybody could claim, can claim a label. You need to actively be decentering yourselves, actively giving up your platform, giving up that space. If that's not happening, if you are not, if you are not an accomplice, I I don't I don't want to I don't want to hear it. It needs it needs to be active and it needs to be it needs to be intentional and it can't be something that you simply adopt for yourself. Exactly. And I think too like the real like accomplices are too busy to be posting about <laughs> being allies or accomplices because they're like doing the work. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the most powerful things that people can do in anti, anti-racism, anti, anti-black racism work is to learn and to do it and to not be, to not be preaching it from, from the rafters or, or the heavens, because to me, you to me that centers again to be talking about, you know, how how anti-racist you are. I noticed like a flood of of uh, social media posts where people were talking about how they've been discriminated against. And that effort could have been spent supporting black people, going out to to the marches, 
donating donating time and money where it's needed and taking the lead from from black folks and and I really want to challenge people who are centering themselves at this at this moment this is this is not this is not the time to be doing that this is a time to center black life and black voices and to take leadership from black people but that's what white supremacy undermines is that that fundamental that fundamental respect for for black people and our humanity and to respect and trust our leadership so i want to know uh for both of you what are you doing for your own self and community care right now because this is a moment where people are are looking at us looking looking to us whether we've asked for that or not and i want to know how how you both are taking care at this time so this is a really difficult one and i'll try to not make this too long-winded but um again i'm a mother i'm raising a black son who's 13. um i realize he's now 13 he's seen to the world as a threat um Mm. and he's only going to continue to grow so you know my anxiety around him leaving the house at this point because I always encourage him to leave, out, leave the house and make friends and play and stuff like that but in the midst of all this stuff I started getting anxiety over oh my gosh what if like some kids like attack him or you know what I mean like something happens or there's an incident happening and I can't protect him right so there's that there's the ongoing fear of being a mother of a, a black son who's growing and his life's just starting and how these things are going to affect him back in 2016 he actually was so traumatized um, by the Black Lives Movement at that time. So 2015, 2016, they were protesting Freddie Ray's murder. And I was having lots of conversations with friends about this, this and he was overhearing the conversations. And then J- Jaden didn't want to go outside anymore. He was afraid of the police officers, like literally, like scared of them. Every time a cop, you'd hear cop sirens, he was scared. We'd see cops in the street, he was scared. Um, and luckily at the time where I was working, I had a placement student who was actually a police cadet. Um, and... I told him the story about how my son was now scared of the police because of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that was being publicized on TV. So he was, I was fortunate enough to have him go to one of the police stations and talk to an actual black sergeant. And they kind of showed him around and like tried to make it more comforting for him to say, Hey, you know what? There's black cops too. And this cop's nice. And he was able to sit in the car and and learn a bit about it. And Jaden actually felt so much better. It changed his whole demeanor. He wasn't scared of the police anymore because he had that experience. So that helped us at that time. Now Jaden's getting older. Um, it's still, things are still a little bit different. And I think that was for self-care. It's hard because, you know, we were going through a mixed bag of emotions the last few weeks, very angry, very depressed, very sad. Um, and then it's like, you're being re-traumatized all the time and, you know, trying to participate in the movement, but then trying to take your breaks from it too, because it all becomes too much because you're living it. I think really the best self-care we can do as black people right now, for me at least, is kind of spend time in nature, you know, get exercise, go outside, go for walks, meditate, truly be reflective on your journey. Um, and yeah, do what you can to, to help the movement, but at the same time, don't burn yourself out advocating as well, because we need to take a step back, take a step back, because a lot of this stuff can be really overwhelming and just really tiresome. And I think the biggest word right now is just tiresome. Like we're just tired. I want to uh, jump in, Carissa, here. Um, particularly, I know that there are white folks listening, and I don't want to. I don't want to undermine that story, but i I don't want I don't want people to to think that it is simply enough to engage with police officers who they who they deem to be kind, because I, I feel like that can be a way of of re-traumatizing uh racialized people black people in particular and too often we're told to you know engage engage with the with the police as a as a way of of addressing these these issues and i think it's it's important that um that you know you talk about that experience that your son had but i i definitely uh i don't i don't want this to be you know let's let's let that's like that's the the takeaway that you know I think some people will have from this is it's just enough to engage with the police and and it's not we need to we need to really be looking at the systemic the systemic roots and as as black folks we are varied and we have 
varied experiences with with police brutality and injustice. Uh, I don't want uh, that to be the the primary uh, the primary takeaway because I feel like it can really uh, gaslight uh, the the um, the experiences of of uh, black folks. Yeah. So again, that was just what we that helped meet my situation, right? I'm not saying right. that. Yeah, I've seen to now gallivant with the police and like see the nice <laughs> right. cops, um, because obviously we know the the issue is way beyond that. But I'm just Absolutely. grateful for at that time to ease his anxiety. That particular situation helped him. But at the same time, like, again, like, we know that there's there's problems within that system, right? Um, and like I said, it goes beyond diversity inclusion training because Absolutely. this stuff isn't isn't stopping it. I think it's... Um, yeah, and, and for me, um, so, so my self-care um, in, like, the last little bit, like, I will admit it's, it's been quite difficult uh, mm-hmm. because first there was COVID... And then now there's this. And then in addition to that, there's all the other, like, just like life stuff. Um, so everything is, I think, being exacerbated. Um, and so for me, like, what I have been doing is, one, utilizing my strengths and, like, my platform um, in a way that I can advocate um, for justice um, without uh, doing anything that would be too taxing. Um, So luckily, I've been able to shift some of my work in order to address this global situation um, without having to do that on top of my work. So like, I've been very lucky for that. Um, And also just honestly, like being around Black people, um, Mm. like, like, that's what I need. Um, Like just being together, crying together, like talking out the situation and our fears. Um, but honestly, like it's hard because, um, I feel like right now black people are in survival mode Mm. because it's like, we don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know what's going to happen to our friends and family. Um, but so it's kind of like, how do you cultivate like a realm of wellness around you? if like there's a a threat to our lives um like how can we self-care how can we community care without one defunding the police and then eventually abolishing the police because we can't be well if at any time the police can do something to harm us Mm -hmm. so i think personally activism and self-care go hand in hand I think it's important to, and thank you so much for sharing that, Tyra. I think it's important to acknowledge that the system was not was not created with us in mind. It wasn't created for our wellness. And so the ways that we take care of ourselves and and our communities, that that in itself is a form of of resistance. This society was not created for our for our well-being, it was created in in spite of us, and it was also created to to profit from and exploit us. And so, you know, our, our continued resistance is is a form of is a form of wellness. Exactly. And what's that um, Audre Lorde quote? <laughs> I think now <laughs> is a good time as any. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, always, I'm always bringing out the the Audre Lorde. Uh, for myself, I, I'm really holding space for uh, f- for community and and the ways that I that I engage with with Black folks and you know to acknowledge when we have that when they have when we have that difference of 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 perspective of opinion, but that we that we are we're going through it together and we're allowed to we're allowed to 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 be to to have that that varied experience as any as anybody as anybody else has but also acknowledging how we're how we we share this this embodiment as as black people and and that is and that brings us that brings us in in communion it brings us it brings us together is there we're almost at the end, folks. Is there anything um, 
that you want to to address as as a final point or something that you really feel uh, passionately about about sharing at this at this moment? Um, yeah. So right now, I would actually like to mention um, a new bill um, in Alberta. Uh, so I would like to thank you. Yeah, uh, I would like to mention Bill One. Um, so this was recently um, introduced by the UCP, um, and it's essentially going to make um, protesting of essential services um, finable um, and also like arrestable. Um, Up to six months in jail. Yeah, which I think is um, concerning because. Um, like they could make anything essential services, essentially. Um, and I think it's also an attack on uh, black protesters. And I also think indigenous land defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is essential. Um, I keep using that word. Uh, <laughs> essential to um, not allow this bill to go into action. Um, and if it does, to rally around the first person who is fined or the first person who is arrested and make sure that we can lead it to being a a Supreme Court case so that if it does come into action, we can kind of squash it. I think that is a priority. Absolutely. Uh, You need to, we need to contact our MLAs. This, uh, This is likely going to receive royal assent today. This is happening in real time, folks. So we need to get our voices out there right now. This is, this is, this is critical. There is another uh, vigil for, uh, for Black Lives downtown at City Hall tomorrow from 4 to 5. Like these, this is happening in real time. And the fact that this attack on Indigenous land defenders and Black Lives Matter protesters is happening right now um, is, is completely unacceptable. And thank you so much, Tyra, for, uh, for bringing uh, Bill 1 to the space because we need to address it now. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up, Tyra. And again, this is a classic example of systemic racism. So for all of you, everyone who believes that it doesn't exist in Canada, that's your proof right there. It continues to happen. Well, I want to thank Tyra and Carissa so much for being on the On Learning channel today. Uh, we have a Patreon that you can donate to keep our efforts up and to make sure that we are uh, continuing to produce quality content. We are the Unlearning channel on Patreon, uh, the Unlearning channel on Instagram. Uh, we are also uh, making a collection of Black-owned businesses that you can support at this time. If you feel passionately about anti-black racism this is the time to show your support thank you so much tyra and carissa thank you for having us melby thank you melby